I don't really know how to start shows. Come on now, don't start, don't start liking me now. So yeah, I'm funny compared to, you know, well, you'll see later. I stand for mayhem! I know a lot of fucking idiots. I think a lot of shit is mean-spirited just because it goes against what they believe. But the relief of comedy is it takes things that aren't funny and it allows us to laugh about them for an hour. We got a purple suit to buy and a gigantic coffin. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Why Are You Laughing, a history of comedy podcast. And today, I am pleased to introduce to you the great Gary Shandling, who is uh, not just one of the greats of his time, but a truly innovative guy. And uh, I knew his impact in comedy for a long time. I knew his voice. Uh, I mean, I, I meant his name forever. But uh, when I was a kid, I thought of him almost as like a poor man Seinfeld. And then the more I've learned about him over the years, and especially with this uh, Jed Apatow documentary that we'll probably reference through t- a few times throughout the show, you realize this is one of the most innovative guys, um, not even necessarily in stand-up, but in television history, truly. Uh, he created some things that still to this day you see uh, a ton of influence and just straight up ripped off over the years from, uh, I think, like sketch comedy all the way to dramatic television, I think. Uh, Gary Shandling and the Larry Sanders show and it's Gary Shandling show uh, had a lot of uh, influence in the history of comedy and television. So we will make sure to get into all of that today. And uh, it's good to have just the boys back after a couple of good guest episodes. And uh, if you miss those or you want to watch them again, make sure you go to blindmike.net. That's where you can get all the archives, go through every episode. And I recommend some of those early. Uh, if you guys are new to why are you laughing, at least new to watching regularly, then uh, go back through the archives, watch some of the early episodes. And uh, easiest way to find those is blindmike.net. That's where you can find all the free links to the show, wherever you get podcasts, whether it be Apple, Spotify, Google Play. Uh, I recommend the YouTube channel. Um, Make sure you subscribe, tap the notification bell, and you can even become a YouTube member if you want, uh, or subscribe to the Patreon. That link is at blindmike.net as well. Um, And you get bonus episodes every single month. The most recent bonus episode we did was the roast of Rich Voss. So if you liked uh, the Colin Quinn episode from a couple weeks ago, I definitely recommend going and watching that Voss episode because there's a lot of great jokes both about Colin and from Colin. So uh, make sure you check that bonus episode out and uh, try to do a couple every single month as well as release these episodes uh, a week before they come out to the masses. So subscribe, Patreon, become a YouTube member, whatever. And uh, yeah, we... Appreciate it. If you go on the uh, the YouTube and click playlists, there's a Why You Laughing one with all of the videos in order in which they came out. It makes it easy. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And I, I I like the ones with the least amount of views, honestly. Those are usually the best episodes. Me too. For people see like Jackie Gleason and they don't know him, so they don't care. But uh, episodes like that, I definitely recommend because I find a lot of those guys to be the most interesting. I agree. Um, but speaking of interesting guys... I definitely think Gary Shandling fits into that category because like I said, when I was a kid, I kind of thought of him in this uh, Paul Reiser sort of category where like, Oh, he's an observational comedian trying to be Seinfeld. And it's like, Oh no, he was Seinfeld before Seinfeld. (laughs) Seinfeld actually took a lot from him, I think. Mm. Um, And I mean that in the term of influence, not like stealing or anything. But they're, they're definitely uh, contemporaries, I would say. And you could argue that Gary Shandling um, had as much influence on uh, the world of television as 
uh, Jerry Seinfeld did. So I think he's definitely an interesting guy. And when I saw, uh, you know, the criticism about Judd Apatow, Judd Apatow made a great documentary about Gary Shandling. And the common criticism of Apatow is that everything he makes is at least an hour too long. Yes. <laughs> so when I turned on this documentary uh, to prepare, prepare, prepare for this episode, um, I thought we would be spending an hour at Leslie Mann's house or something. But honestly, I didn't think there was that much fat on it. Like, you could definitely shorten it, I'm sure. And the fact that they call it the Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling, I think is a little misleading. Because when I saw that title when it came out a few years ago, I thought it was like specifically about him being a Buddhist or him meditating. That's a very small portion of it. And uh, it's, it really does a good deep dive into his career. I didn't know how close him and Apatow were. I knew Apatow wrote on the Larry Sanders show, but it seemed like they were genuinely very close afterwards. Um, and it wasn't insanely ball washing. Actually, there's some stuff in there that's not, I mean, they don't, berate Shandling after he died, of course, but uh, there's some stuff that's definitely not flattering that don't paint him as a, a saint of any kind. So uh, we'll definitely get into all of that today. Um, but we'll start in the early years of Shandling where uh, when he was a kid, um, his brother uh, suffered of a disease. It was a ah, damn. I'm forgetting the disease now. Multiple sclerosis. That can't be right. Myeloma? I don't know. Something like that. <laughs> Leave in the comments what Gary Shandling's brother suffered from. I should, I should have written it down. But um, he died when he was 13. Barry Shandling. Which sounds like if I was making up uh, Gary Shandling's brother that died, his name would be Barry Shandling, uh, died when he was 13 and Gary was 10 years old. And um, that kind of cause, uh, this was very weird. And they talk about this a lot throughout the documentary. Uh, cystic fibrosis. Uh, cystic fibrosis. Thank you. I'm sorry. I should have uh, should have remembered that. Um, but he's talking to uh, Marin about this. I think our first few clips are from WTF with Mark Marin that he did. And he's talking to Marin, and uh, they mentioned his childhood, and he's like, "Yeah, I had a brother that died when I was 13." He kind of glosses right over it. And the way they portray this in the documentary was that um, this affected Gary throughout his life. And that's why he didn't really want to talk about it. Like when there's trauma that early, you realize this when you go to therapy, there's things where you can tell yourself like, Oh, that never really even bothered me when I was a kid, but you just don't realize the ways in which it bothered you. Mm -hmm. And that's how they make it seem like this affected Gary. And what absolutely, if any dime store therapist could tell you that this absolutely affected him was that he had to, piece together that his brother died. Uh, Gary was not at the funeral. And I assume this was like some way to protect him or whatever. They're like, Oh, he's 10 years old. He's too young to be, but they didn't tell him that his brother died just through context. Gary had to say, well, the hell's, hell's Barry. <laughs> he hasn't been around in a while. <laughs> so that's, that's got to make you, uh, I dare say a neurotic worry wart. <laughs> Surely nothing catastrophic happened. <laughs> yeah, there's no way that guy's going to become, yeah. you know, observe and worry about everything. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that really, you know, laid the groundwork for what became of Gary Shandling. And uh, it also caused his mother to kind of smother him and pay all her, her of her attention towards Gary now. 
And uh, that's where we're starting is him talking about his mom. Uh, I actually uh, uh, gave my mom uh, a, a really nice thank you gift for her birthday once yeah. and uh, wrote a note on there. said, yeah. Mom, I couldn't have done this without you. Yeah. Thank you. And she looked at it. This is true. And yeah. looked at it and then took a beat and then looked up. We were alone in the kitchen. Yeah. In the kitchen. And she said, why, why can't you say this on TV? <laughs> and I looked at her and uh, I said, well... Let me see if I have this right. Would it mean more to you if I said it on TV as opposed to right now when I'm with you in the kitchen, in person, yeah. speaking to you as your son? Yeah. She said, on TV. <laughs> That's true. Oh, my God. <laughs> I think uh, Gary goes on and goes, I didn't want you to say, oh, my God. I wasn't that worried about it. <laughs> no, Mark Marin says, oh, my God. But, um, but, yeah, I think that's the kind of relationship that he had with his parents where, again, very Seinfeldian. And I mean, like, the parents in Seinfeld where it's not – they're not horrible parents. They're just like, oh, God, I have to deal with these people. That sort of parents, if that makes sense. Right. That's the vibe I got from listening to Gary uh, talk about his parents and his upbringing. And um, they, they did, they did have uh, kind of a weird relationship because uh, Gary also has a joke. Um, he never married. He was engaged for a while, but uh, never married, never had kids. And uh, again, they claim in the documentary, this is one thing I do hate about documentaries. And I remember Craig, you and I talked about it with the Patrice O'Neill documentary where there's a lot of inferring what Gary thought based on like what the people in the documentary would think. Meaning they're like, you know, Gary probably never had kids because uh, that bro his bro the cystic fibrosis runs in his family and he wouldn't want, and the way they were saying it, I was like, it seems like you're kind of assuming this, right? <laughs> which makes it a little weird to project that onto Gary in the documentary. Um, but my uh, my point being is that um, a lot of that early upbringing, the way he talked about his family, um, it, it that does seem to have uh, weighed on him throughout his life. No matter what it was, like the idea of having a family, um, he has a, a joke in his act that uh, he says, "My mother uh, always pressures me to have kids, but uh, the problem is I don't think she wants me to have them with another woman." <laughs> so. <laughs> So that's the type of relationship he had uh, with his parents and more specifically his mom. Um, next, we have him talking about uh, George Carlin being an influence. Yeah. So Carlin, the other, uh, you know, epic documentary that uh, Apatow made was about George Carlin. And uh, George Carlin had a great impact in Gary's career because this is a little like we were talking with uh, Christian Blatt about Colin Quinn the way certain guys treat younger comedians can go a long way in either encouraging or, or discouraging them to continue with their career. And George Carlin definitely uh, encouraged Gary Shamley. Was. Who are the uh, who are the guys that uh, that made you realize you could do it? Well, I mean, Carlin deserves all the credit for uh, uh, reading my material when I was 19. I uh -huh. walked up into him in a club and make it short. I walked into a club in Phoenix and he was there and I had written some material in his style for him, basically, but knowing he wrote his own stuff, uh, for some reason I knew that. Yeah. And I just asked him if he would read it and tell me what he thought. This would have been in way back when I was a first year of college. And he said, yeah, come back tomorrow night. And I went back, and he had read it. 
And uh, it was really shocking. There was my material sitting in his dressing room on, his, on a little table, and he said, I read it, and there's something funny in, on every page, and it's very green. But if you're thinking of pursuing it, I would. And I think that's what really <clears throat> made me go uh, forward, I, I think. I think that's really what made me go forward, because I, I moved from Tucson then to L.A. after I graduated from and, the U of A. And, yeah, one of the greats said, hey, keep going. So I went, you know what? That's probably a good spot to go. <laughs> hey, see, I think he knows what he's talking about, this George Carlin. <laughs> I mean, that, and that's I love stories like that just because there's so many instances where, you know, someone at George Carlin's level is like, ah, fuck off, kid. Right. You know? Now, sometimes that motivates the person to be like, I'm going one day, I'm going to tell George Carlin to go fuck himself, you know, (laughs) or whoever it would be. But uh, it is always a much nicer story when the guy is actually cool and what you want him to be. And it seems like uh, George was that for a lot of young comedians. That's uh, our, our pal Joe DeRosa. His famous keep kicking him in the nuts tattoo is because that's something that uh, George Carlin said to him as a young comedian. Um, so I think guys like, uh, George, it's nice to hear that they're good. The young comics, um, when they're good, because it's kind of like the thing we talked about with that fan is like bastard. Sometimes when they're nasty to you, it's not just to be a dick. It's to almost motivate you a little bit and, and break the week. But, uh, Gary was in a position where his stuff was good enough that George didn't shit all over him, I guess. Yeah. I heard, uh, George used to trip blind guys on the sidewalk and said, not near me. It was a me. motivating factor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, next, we have him talking about Sanford and Son. Uh, yeah, so he was kind of a proge- prodigy. At a very early age, he got into television writing, and the first show he uh, officially worked on was uh, our boy Red Fox and Sanford and Son. Weren't a comic. You didn't start in. No, comedy. I started as a writer. I was wrote on uh, after college. I wrote for Sanford and Son. Did when you? I was like twenty five years old. Did you think Fred uh, Red Fox was hilarious? Uh, I thought Red Fox was funny, but um, I was learning to write scripts. Right. And then after I wrote three of them that were that they shot, that I, one? I was confused because I, I was. Uh, kind of uh, uh, wondering how you write more than three. Why do you write 20? Why do you write 40? <laughs> right. And uh, I had a therapist then, which was very fortunate. And I said, I, I think I'm something's wrong with me because I, anyone would be happy to be working on the number one show at the time yeah. and uh, be making uh, really good money. And, and why am I? She said, you're bored. <laughs> and it struck me like a, like a, like a, therapist saying everything my mother had never said. That's how it struck me. Right. Because I I was always taught that it was uh, your problem. Right. Well, she said, you're bored. And I never thought of it that way. And that's when I started to do stand up because I was bored. It's a weird reaction to is Red Fox funny. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I found it interesting, though, because uh, that's a that's something that plagued um, Shandling's entire career is that. Uh, idea of boredom or getting antsy or wanting to change what he was doing or getting sick of what he was doing in the moment. Um, and that's kind of what inspired him to getting into standup is just doing something different and performing didn't feel as mundane to him uh, as writing. And another interesting story he tells about that is that, um, you know, so he gets these uh, three Sanford and sons and I think an episode of uh, Welcome Back Cotter as well. He writes them and gets them on air. There's a big difference. Um, like once you hear enough of these guys talk, you learn that there's a difference between like writing for a show and getting a show on air. Mm-hmm. So getting three episodes of Sanford and Son on air is a huge deal. And uh, Gary called 
you know, some big time agent to try and get him to sign him. And he described it as like, it's like, I'm talking to this guy and he's literally yawning on the phone. He's bored. He's like, okay, so you wrote three Sanford and sons and a welcome back Cotter. Have you submitted them anywhere? And Gary's like, what are you talking about? They, they were on air. And the guy's like, they, they were on air. What do you, you don't have an agent. What's wrong with you? <laughs> he was talking to your therapist. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so Gary has, uh, has no idea how, how successful he is at this time. Like, and, and that's something that would motivate a lot of people to just be a TV writer forever. Whereas Gary was like kind of bored of it. The other thing that clip made me think of is uh, in the episode we did about Red Fox. Um, we heard him say uh, that, you know, like the writing staff was all white and he's like, how are these people going to write for the idea of like a poor black family or, you know, father and son, whatever. How is, how is a room of white writers going to understand, you know, the lingo and everything. And sometimes I think like, well, you know, it's a matter of perspective, I guess what their upbringing was and everything. And they realized one of those writers was Gary Shandling. <laughs> like, I could see him not writing for Red Fox, I guess. Brilliant guy, but I can understand why Red Fox is like, they just, they don't get me, these guys. <laughs> it does make more sense. Yeah. Um, so uh, he gets into stand up. Um, what's our next clip before? Because I do have one story I want to tell before I think we get into uh, it. I'm talking about the talk show. Okay, before we get into that, I will say real quick, I guess another motivating factor for him to pursue stand-up more than television was he had a near-death experience where um, basically he got into a car accident, um, you know, uh, rear-ended someone, something like that, and he gets out to uh, check her vehicle, he's talking to her, and he wants to, it doesn't seem like there's a ton of damage done and he says he gets on the ground to see if there's any damage like underneath the car. And at that moment, a car co- comes on his side and just smashes him. Scar across his head. He's hospitalized uh, for weeks and he almost died. And he says in that time where he was you know, knocked out at the hospital, um, he had like sort of an out- out of body experience where, you know, God or some voice said to him, uh, do you want to keep living as Gary Shandling? And he said, yes, without thinking is how he describes it. And then I guess he was like, ah, fuck, I'm still Gary Shandling. So uh, <laughs> Damn. he had kind of a crazy experience like that, that um, it's interesting the amount of people we've talked about in this show that have had like brain injuries or been in horrible car accidents um, and, you know, uh, it, change their life not for the better but like they became funnier afterwards somehow kinnison being the most famous kinnison roseanne i think there's another one we talked about recently i can't remember but uh yeah so uh they said after that gary um basically became more insistent on pursuing stand-up and and just in general kind of doing what he wanted sort of a you only live once type of mentality um, he got into, you know, meditation and, and Buddhism and all this kind of stuff as well. So, um, now I think the next couple of clips, we jump around a little bit. The timeline that I have these ordered in isn't hundred percent perfect, but, uh, we're talking about the idea of having a talk show right now. And we'll get in more into him, uh, being on the tonight show and filling in for Johnny Carson and things like that. But, uh, this is a little bit of him talking about that here. 
When you did uh, uh, Larry Sanders, I mean, did you actually, did you, how close were you to, to being offered a regular position as a, I was. I had to make a decision right before. I had to make a, a, a simultaneous decision. Between The Tonight Show? Between, uh, no, at that point, The Tonight Show, uh, uh, at that point I was offered, for, for Sanders, I was offered this show uh, after the, after Letterman. Mm-hmm. I was offered the show after Letterman, right. which I think... Uh, that, a Letterman's old show? Letterman or? had already moved to CBS. Okay, okay, so you're offered, so the, offered the, that Ferguson's spot. Ferguson's spot, the 1230. Yeah, and prior to that, I was offered the original Conan O'Brien spot. I mean, going on back, going yeah, back, yeah, yeah, going yeah. back. Right. So I had to make a decision, literally, whether to host a talk show on CBS or do a show about a guy who hosts a talk show. Right. And so as we're sitting here having this discussion, Mark... It would make sense that you could see me choose the guy who hosts the talk show because I can examine all these issues much more deeply. Right. And uh, that interests me. Yeah. And so I, I stayed true, I think, to my myself. I, I have no regrets about uh, oh, no, it's that, great that, 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 that move. And I think that... You would uh, probably be sitting behind a desk hating yourself right now <laughs> if you had made a different decision. Uh, I, I think that's uh, probably true. <laughs> That's that's amazing perspective because if you just look at it on the surface, and I think a lot of people probably would look at it this way, and say that um, rumors were that Gary was offered five million dollars to take over for Letterman on NBC, uh, five million dollars a year, which is I mean wild money at that time. Mm. So you could look at that and say like he would have had a talk show for God, he could have been Conan O'Brien. That's how you could easily look at it. And Gary, even with, you know, uh, hindsight in his favor, says like, no, I'm glad I did what I did. Now, the Larry Sanders show for anyone, and we'll talk a lot about it, but for anyone that's not aware of it, I recommend you go check it out because it it's like a mix of Entourage and 30 Rock set at a late night talk show. But there's more of a like the office type feel to it in the sense that you kind of like feel for like you grow to like the characters and feel for them in a way that's not the case on something like 30 rock. Uh, So it incredibly innovative show. And what's interesting about Gary's decision is that the idea of turning down $5 million from CBS or NBC to do late night at virtually the peak of late night versus a show on HBO when HBO does Let's not forget the Sopranos hadn't happened yet. Right. This is uh, 1992, I think, was when the Larry Sanders show first aired. So this is not the HBO that we all know. This is like, I'm going to be on a cable station that very few people are going to see. It'll, you know, it'll have a cult audience. People, will, The people that watch it will enjoy it, but it's not, a, it's not Seinfeld. It's not Friends, one of those. So that's an incredibly ballsy decision for Gary to make. Um, but we'll get more, I think, into the Larry Sanders show uh, as we go on. So I don't want to shoot my wad here too much. Uh, here we have him talking about his first Tonight Show. Yeah. So uh, Gary's one of those guys that the Tonight Show did uh, kind of make in a way, but it wasn't as easy for him to get on as he was uh, hoping. That night, did you just do the stand-up act, or did you get interviewed by Johnny Carson? Oh, just the stand-up act. Uh, I remember being upset later, like my fifth or sixth time, that Johnny still hadn't asked me over to the desk. And uh, by the time he did ask me over to the desk, I was within weeks of them saying, do you want a guest host? 
Yeah, and uh, I remember being gassed over to the to the desk, and uh, uh, Carrie Fisher had preceded me and was talking about her parents, Debbie Reynolds and Eddie Fisher at the at the time. And I sat down and I said, Johnny, maybe you know my parents, Irvin Muriel Shandling, and that made him laugh real hard. And I, I thought that's where he decided to give him a shot because it was very organic. Yeah, so it's interesting because, like, the thing everyone wanted was Carson to call them over to the couch. And you would assume, based on becoming one of the, like, main, uh, you know, fill-in hosts for a time of The Tonight Show, you would think Shandling obviously had that in one of his first appearances, but it took him uh, a little while to get on there. Um, Or to get on the couch, I should say. But, uh, yeah, The Tonight Show was uh, a massive impact on Shandling's career, because uh, it was after Joan Rivers had had her spat with Johnny, which we covered in great detail in a previous episode. Uh, after that all happened, you had Jay Leno, but they wanted to, you know, kind of alternate that a little bit. So uh, they offered it to Shandling, and he didn't even really love that idea, which I think we're getting into next, right? Uh, this is the 25th anniversary. Oh, well, let me uh, speak more to that. We might have a clip later. These are, these are a little out of order, so I'm a little scatterbrained here. But basically, um, after uh, Shanling guest host of The Tonight Show, like I said, he basically replaced John Rivers in kind of that recurring role. And then they asked him, yeah. do you want to be basically, you know, full-time fill-in? It's you and Jay Leno. And again, Shanling said no. Because he had shows coming up that he would have to work on. And he was just like, you know, it doesn't really interest me. Like I've done it. I know I can do it now. Um, and I'm, I'm moving on. So this thing of like getting bored, doing one thing uh, really defined Shandling um, to a point where you could, he, he could have been a lot more famous if he could have suffered through a little boredom but he wouldn't have been nearly as innovative. So you got to have a hell of a lot of respect for the decisions he was able to make purely based on uh, creativity and his own, you know, passion and drive for things. But speaking of a uh, drive and creativity, the next show we're about to talk about is truly innovative in the sense that uh, he may not have been hosting the tonight show, but he did have a 20th anniversary for a talk show that never existed. We worked on deeper themes as an actor in it. I was playing much different things than was in the script. And every week we'd work. So he'd have this talk with me every week, and he would deconstruct what's happening there and how that applies to your personal life and what are you bringing personally when you're saying that line. You're not really saying. We can jump to Sanders, which he also helped me with the first two years. You're not really saying to Hank, uh, you're an idiot. You're saying you love him. (laughs) <laughs> you're desperately trying to tell him you love him. You idiot. <laughs> so it doesn't come out like you idiot, like, uh, like a mean guy saying you idiot, if there is something else going on there. Because I'm trying to get him to understand that I love him, let's say. That's Roy Lyman. Hypothetically. So b- before we get to It's Gary Shandling Show, let's just touch a little bit on the Gary Shandling Show 25th anniversary special. Um, wh- why did you choose that specific format? You know, uh, uh, I had done one special for Showtime, and they said, come in and uh, pitch another one. So we're getting back to, like, the Sanford and Son style of what what, what uh, patterns replicated themselves in my 
life and, and it was pitching. And uh, honestly, I had all these ideas for specials that I don't remember now. And I was in the bathroom in the, in the building where Showtime was. And I thought, uh, uh, why not do an artificial 25th anniversary special? And I think that would have been before anybody Uh, I think Letterman has played with time and gone back. And I don't think it was um, from that at all, or I'd be happy to say I was influenced by that. It just struck me. And I see in hindsight how these pieces of the puzzle fit together because there's a guy who's pretending like he hosted a talk show for 25 years. And I thought, I know I can pull that off and make it look real. Well, what I find fun so to write about- really funny sketches about things that, failed as you look at the highlights. What I find so interesting about Shanling in that clip is that you hear him there kind of like, he's like, I want to say I invented this, but I also <laughs> don't want to be accused of, I, like he's already thinking about and, and, and this was, this interview was from like 2010 or something. Yeah. So comments weren't as prevalent, but in his mind, he's already thinking of being called out as a liar for ripping off Letterman or something. <laughs> so you hear his mind working where he's like, Listen, maybe Letterman did it before me. I don't know, but I'm pretty sure I'm goddamn innovative. Definitely. But that's unbelievable for, and he's still a pretty young comic at this time where Showtime comes to him and says, we want to give you a special. The easy thing to do would be like, I'm going to do my stand up for an hour. Instead, he says, I'm going to create a 25th anniversary show, making fun of the anniversary shows that like Carson has for himself. While filling in for Carson, and he gets Carson to be on the show, by the way. Like, Carson didn't do anything, and he appeared in this 25th anniversary show. Um, so, th- again, the, the balls that that takes to not just say, like, I'll just do a regular special. He's a guy um, that I think is in, like, the, the, the 1% of comedians, uh, certainly that we've covered, but that I can think of in general – that would think creative first that wouldn't just do what would, you know, make them the most popular or make them the most money uh, or be the easiest. They think what's something that no one has done. And that drove him to have some of the most creative things that were ever put on television. And, you know, immediately you think of it's Gary Shandling show and Larry Mm -hmm. Sanders, but I had never heard of this 25th anniversary thing. Like that's a, and what's weird about it is at the time in 1985, I think it was around there. What's weird about that is there is no, you know, guide on the television or anything like that. You can't just look up, look at your screen and have it tell you what this is. People are stumbling on showtime and you just have Gary Shandling saying, boy, what a crazy 25 years it's been. <laughs> Meanwhile, he's like 35. <laughs> And anyone just turning that on, not knowing what it is, is going to be like, what the fuck? What's going What's What's Why is Johnny Carson on this show? What's happening? <laughs> so truly wild and, and innovative. I know I'm going to say the word innovative 10,000 times, but it's warranted. Yeah. And next uh, we have him with Larry King uh, talking about the Gary Shandling show. Uh. <laughs> oh, 
I was like, what? <laughs> I'm just my Larry King. I, <laughs> I realized after I paused for a second. I was like, <laughs> well, I'll tell you. I will tell you. I was uh, honestly, I was trying to think of what I had to say about Larry. I was like, I know there's a Larry King reference I saved for this, and it's that um, Larry's asking him about this show. They're, they're talking about uh, it's Gary Shandling's show, and Shandling goes, "Do you watch it?" And he goes, "Man, be serious with me. Do you watch it?" And Larry goes, uh, "Well, no. It's it's up against my show. I can't watch it." And Shanling just like he pauses and thinks about it. He goes, "No, it isn't." <laughs> Larry was just lying. <laughs> it wasn't up against his show. <laughs> Shanling's like, "I'm here promoting it. Of course, it's not up against my show." <laughs> I'm on this right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's. What is going on in his life? I play Gary Shanling. I play myself, a comedian who lives at home, and uh, it's what goes on in my life. And next door lives my platonic girlfriend, and uh, I have married friends. And it's about this single guy going through life and dealing with everything that one deals Sound with familiar? in life. And while that sounds like, <laughs> what are you saying? Somehow there's humor in there. Is this something uh, the other networks would not touch? Well, I. I uh, I think the other networks, uh, wisely enough, try and stay away from me. I think that uh, we tried to sell it to NBC. I had a development deal with NBC, and they've always been supportive. You know, I host The Tonight Show and whatnot, and uh, I have a great relationship with all of them. And the concept is very bizarre because of, uh, I talk to the camera, and um, we go up into the audience, and it breaks all the rules of regular sitcom. NBC said, eh, we're going to make Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David billionaires, actually, if you wouldn't mind. We're going to wait about five years. <laughs> uh, so when he's describing it, it sounds a lot like Seinfeld, but it wasn't right. at all, honestly. It, right. was, it, was, it truly was very different. I think there are a lot of comparisons between Seinfeld and Shandling, and I think that probably uh, plagued Shandling a lot as a guy who, you know, overanalyzes stuff. I'm sure there were times at Seinfeld's peak where he's thinking, you know, why isn't this me when I created a lot of this stuff? But truly, it's Gary Shandling's show was very different. And they kind of created things like uh, breaking, like talking to the camera. What uh, they're talking about when Larry says this is something networks didn't want to touch is Shandling, you know, pitched it to NBC, like he said. And Shandling is like, okay, I want to talk to the camera. Like, I want to, times there's, we, we pause you know, like Zach Morris, basically. And like, I address the audience and they're like, no, nah, that's too weird. What if you talk to like your dog or something instead? And Shanley's just like, ah, I can tell it. He would have gotten more money at NBC, but he's like, Showtime's going to let me do what I want with this. And I, by all accounts, I, I was surprised to hear this was the first, but like uh, in the first season of the show, they do a, a parody of the graduate. And they say that that's like the first show to ever do something like that, where an episode is basically parodying a, a famous movie, which the reason it was so surprising to me is so many shows do that now. I mean, could the show community got to a point where like, I'd be stunned if I found out Dan Harmon was not influenced by Gary Shandling because community got to a point where every episode was a movie parody of some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, so like that's done all the time now. And Shandling was the first to do that kind of stuff. He was, uh, he did, they did say that I think George Burns had a show that was similar in the sense that like the characters knew they were in a sitcom basically. Um, but Shandling, yeah. Also one of the first to do that. This reminds me a lot of the Tom green episode where the further we go in, we're like, 
this guy is he's brilliant. He, he is created everything. 20 years yeah. ahead. <laughs> what the hell is going Yeah, honestly, Shandling is a guy and Tom Green was a little like this too. They're very different creatively, obviously. But Shandling's a guy that is plagued by being from the time he is and as innovative as he was. Because if he was doing this stuff, I mean, six years later, he would have been a billionaire. Right. You know, like if, and if, even with Showtime, if you're using Showtime and HBO, his shows were on Showtime and HBO. Now the biggest shows are on HBO or platforms like that. Where you hear Gary, I, I, um, one of the interviews I took from, like I said, was from 2010, uh, maybe, maybe 2011 at the latest. And he's saying that he's like, you know, I just think the idea of regimented scheduled shows is a thing of the past. Like the idea of, Oh, you know, friends is on at nine o'clock and Seinfeld's on at eight 30 or whatever. That's going away. He was saying this 12 years ago. And now that's all it is. Now they're almost doing it like, hey, wouldn't it be crazy if we put one episode out a week instead of binge watching? Like <laughs> Shanling was saying that over a decade ago. So this guy couldn't stop being innovative. It really is crazy. Yeah, I love I love these stories, especially because I'm not like um, super aware of him, really. Right. I don't um, think a lot of people are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but here we have him talking about the Tonight Show with... Uh, or whatever you said, Larry King. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Hello. Gary, I'd like to know what your feelings were about being um, asked to be revolving guest host with Jay Leno on The Tonight Show after the Joan Rivers dispute. A revolving host. Yeah, you get a little dizzy. You get, uh, well, I don't know what, what to say about that. Jay, of course, is terrific, and he's terrific when he's on uh, your show. I see, I've seen him uh, often, and... Um, it's great. I, I wouldn't want to host The Tonight Show any more than I do. I have four weeks this year, and, and coupled with the Showtime series and, and the Reason movie I have to write. Too much to do? I'm just too perfect. busy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's I mean, hard to do everything as it is. Host. No, I mean, I couldn't be the uh, permanent host because um, there's this talent barrier. <laughs> no, I don't know how Johnny is funny night after night for 25 years. I mean... You know what it's like 25 years. You've been doing it that long, haven't you? Night after night after night. And there's not pressure for you to be funny on top of it. And you're a funny man. And Johnny to do it night after night. And, uh, of course, uh, David Letterman's funny night after night after night. You can't do that. Uh, well, you know, it's it's just amazing. I'm sure that you it's something you writers. you have to become one with the show and and whatnot to be to be funny night after night. And when I'm done hosting for a week, it's a pretty exhausting experience. The pressure is yeah. probably insane. It's it's got to be, and I think Gary was incredibly self-aware in that and realized, and that's why he wanted to do a sitcom, and they would even talk about on Larry Sanders' show, which is just a, you know, 13 episodes a season about a talk show. There were times in that, like, if he knew he didn't have to be around for a little while, they'd be like, where's Gary? And they'd find out he just flew to Fiji randomly <laughs> and say goodbye to anyone. He just got up and left and bought a plane ticket <laughs> because he would get like bored or antsy or tired or drained. And the self-awareness, there's a lot of people that would have that opportunity, especially again, you know, this is almost 40 years ago, 35 years ago at this point. Um, so he's, you know, he's in his thirties. He's not like a, a kid, but at that time in your career, if people backed up, 
$5 million a year, that sort of opportunity with the amount of eyeballs that uh, late night television had at that time, you would jump at it and worry about the stress later. And for Gary to have the foresight to be like, I just don't, I don't think I could do it night after night. And I'm not going to attempt it. I think that's incredibly self-aware. Like we talked on the blind mic project. We talked about a lot of people that are not self-aware to a fault. Mm -hmm. Uh, Gary's self-awareness truly amazes me. The more I learned about him. Imagine saying no to that. (laughs) That, uh, Like you would just say yes. And then worry about the stresses later. I think that's what a lot of people would do. That first check clear. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Whatever. Yeah, fine. Thank you. (laughs) But I think Seinfeld's another guy like that Mm -hmm. in the sense that, the Seinfeld Chronicles was technically like they were originally talking to Seinfeld about late night television. He's one of these guys that they thought maybe could replace Johnny eventually or replace Letterman or whatever. And I think Seinfeld knew like, I don't know if I could do that. And knowing Seinfeld's personality, do you really think 10 years in he'd be having a fun, a fun chat with, you know, the star of the, the starlet of the day with a uh, Courtney Thorne Smith or someone like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, Shandling uh, knew he couldn't tolerate that nonsense. Uh, but here he is actually with Seinfeld or on Seinfeld. I forget. Yeah. So these two definitely um, uh, comparable careers in terms of material. I, we've talked about how I feel about uh, Jerry's stand up. I personally think Shandling was a better stand up. And, uh, you know, I think if it wasn't for Larry David, we'd be talking more about Gary Shandling on, and, and the TV element as well. But uh, we hear them kind of uh, talking shop here a little bit. Why was my show, honestly, messier to do, as I know it, than yours? You did more episodes. Pause real quick. I couldn't tell in the context. This is just Seinfeld and Shandling hanging out. It's a pretty interesting. Um, I just found it's a 25-minute video on YouTube. And I found it pretty interesting, but through context, I could not tell honestly if they were talking about it's Gary Shandling show or the Larry Sanders show. I assume Larry Sanders, because that became more popular mm-hmm. and had more of a following where like still today, I've heard comedians reference watching the Larry Sanders show growing up. Like, I think that had more of an audience and more of a cultural impact and, you know, they'd have a lot of celebrities on there, I think, which drew some, uh, you know, more uh, mainstream eyeballs to it. So I think they're talking about Larry Sanders, but it's Gary Shandling show is definitely the more comparable show to Seinfeld. On paper, so truly, it's, it's like the same show on paper. Yes. Yeah. Like I said, it is very different. But yeah, when you heard Gary describe it, you're like, so Seinfeld, right? Exactly. <laughs> All the way down to the platonic female friend. Right, right. But. But yeah, I think he's talking about it's Gary Shandling show. I'm just not positive. You did more episodes. I, we don't, it feels how do you that know what way. mine was? It feels uh, that way. What, who, uh, what I may be wrong. feels back to the feelings again. Bringing up feelings. Why do I always feel like the girl when I'm with you? Because <laughs> you pushed the, the revolving door. That's why. Well, because I'm Although trying the man to sort is supposed out. to do that. I I'm trying to. Oh, I see. Well, you I brought. I'll tell you. I'll answer your question if you want an answer. Do you want an answer? I don't think you're ready for it, because you, because my show was um, more of a performance show, whereas your show, a lot of the, the great humor of your show, was brought to it by a. Uh, you had a different air on your show. You had a. It really was 
uh, a realism right. that my show did not have. My show was very, a, what, what would you call it, presentational, uh -huh. si situation comedy, the way you've seen it before. It was just, you know, the writing may have been unusual, but there was nothing really about the performance that, we, that you would say is anything different. Whereas your show, for me, stands out amongst all other sitcoms uh -huh. in terms of having its own um, tone. And the, uh -huh. the air on your show felt different. Well, see, and I, that's why I think it may have felt messier to you or more difficult to wrangle because you were, you were letting all this stuff, all this reality kind of um, affect the actors and the that's stories. Right. And that's what made the that's show right. great. That's so right. that may be why it felt messier to you, but it. that was the greatness of the show. Yeah, but see, you know, this is where you, you make me angry because, hey, you, you, people also don't, they don't know, I'm going to go back to the acting, the writer. Um, all right. <laughs> I think I, <laughs> Gary was done. I, I didn't, I didn't clip. Uh, I left like a second too long on there. That was my fault. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I do think they're talking about Larry Sanders cause that was a much more realistic show. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about Larry Sanders. And it's, I'm glad that like Jerry has so much respect for that. I think in general, you have more respect for something you didn't do. Whereas I think the way Jerry's talking there, he probably looked at the Larry Sanders show and was like, well, I couldn't create that. Right. Whereas maybe he might look at it's Gary Shandling and say, like, ah, me and Larry could have figured that out, you know? Um, but what's so different about Larry Sanders show. And I think so interesting is that the reason I compared it to like 30 rock and entourage in a very different show, if you go watch it, but what it did it is, is it had this like, you know, behind the scenes, industry feel it had the quirkiness and some of the weirdness of like a 30 rock but like what connected with people about entourage is you felt like you were seeing the business at least the in the early seasons anyways it felt like you were watching the real life of you know an a-list celebrity and when you watch larry sanders even though it's a comedy and even though there's some very funny moments and some ridiculous moments you do feel like you're getting behind the scenes of a talk show. Right. It's a sitcom that d didn't have a laugh track, which was relatively unheard of at that time. And it felt very real. It felt like we were getting, you know, almost a documentary as to how the tonight show or letterman was made or something. And they took a lot of stories. And this is something like the Sopranos did and mad men and a million other shows um, since Larry Sanders is they they took things from um, real life. Like Gary Shandling said he would call, I think we have a clip of this later, I'm spoiling, but he said he uh -oh. would call, uh -oh. <laughs> he would call like Peter LaSalle and say, hey, has this situation ever come up? And Peter LaSalle would say, well, I have, actually have a story exactly related to that. So there were like real life stories injected into these plot lines of a show that felt real because of the way it was shot because of, um, uh, you know, being a sitcom without a laugh track, having celebrities like they're, uh, you know, David Spade and Dana Carvey. We have a clip of uh, Norm coming up later. Uh, you know, Jim Carrey and Sean Penn are in the finale. There's like legitimate celebrities throughout this show playing themselves. And so it really feels like, and it's at a time like David Spade is in it before he's David Spade. And he's playing a guy who's doing stand-up on you know, the tonight show. And so it feels like you're watching 
real life Hollywood. And it was incredibly innovative in that way. And uh, I think that's the thing that you kind of hear Jerry admiring there and saying like, well, Seinfeld was nothing like that. We had our own little bubble that became, I I, uh, always defend seasons eight and nine, but you can tell when Larry David left Mm -hmm. Seinfeld that the formula was there enough for new writers to come in and fill in the blanks, basically. Right. You couldn't have done that with Larry Sanders showing up. No, and um, the next clip we have is him talking about that storyline, Larry Sanders. Oh, well, there you go. I think this is the, the clip I just spoiled. Your show. I think uh, I used uh, stories that happened to me on the Larry Sanders show, uh, I mean, on the Tonight Show, stories that happened to me on all talk shows, stories that happened to me on all shows that I worked on. Other writers use stories from their shows, and uh, it, it became diluted enough that you would often forget who did what to whom. Uh, but they were all based in some fact. And then uh, I've already mentioned Peter LaSalle, and I like to refer to him as the uh, deep throat character, like in uh, All the President's Men, where there he was producing The Tonight Show, and occasionally I'd be shooting an episode of Sanders, and I'd call him up and I'd say, Peter, is there ever a circumstance where, uh, or, or is this totally false, where Hank might fall asleep on the couch or not pay attention? And... Uh, Peter would say, well, let me tell you a little story. <laughs> so uh, I think, uh, and, and Judd Apatow and I still talk about it, we were not going to veer off what is basically the truth. And I think you can't go wrong if you stick to the truth. Uh, and then you can fly anywhere. I remember Letterman telling you at some point when you were on uh, that he thought uh, you must have spies in his staff somewhere feeding you information. (laughs) Well, what you realize is uh, absolutely is that you start to write something about a talk show that happened not to Letterman and Letterman may say that happened to me. And you realize there are generic things that happen about a guest who had one too many drinks or something. (laughs) <laughs> and that that's where I kind of compare it to the office as well in the right. sense that there are elements of it. And Gary would always say, and I do think this is a bit pretentious when you talk like, because it is about a talk show at the end of the day, but he'd say, you know, people make the mistake all the time of thinking this is about a talk show. It's about these characters and these people that a lot of people, you know, misjudge as being like shitheads when in reality, they're just people looking out for themselves in the best way that they know how. And like I said, while that's a little pretentious because it's about a talk show, you know? Right. But what he's saying, the greater point that he's making, I agree with in the sense that there's things everyone can relate to, even though we've never worked in Hollywood, you can watch an episode of uh, uh, the Larry Sanders show and Jeffrey Tambor's character, Hank, there's some asshole you worked with like that. That's, you know, self-conscious, not necessarily the hardest worker, you know, they, I'm talking, this is me, uh, Greg Poehler is going to say, I'm talking about myself again, <laughs> projecting, <laughs> but, but, uh, they're like, they're just relatable characters, no matter where you work, whether you've worked in you know, TV or just the office, um, you could relate to a lot of these characters, which I think, uh, Gary did a good, very good job of doing some things. I do think like, you know, quote geniuses like that do overthink mm-hmm. is like, I'm listening to him talk about uh, the name of the show. And he's like, well, I thought it was important. 
to name it Larry Sanders, because that sounds enough like Gary Shandling. Whereas if I thought, if I played a character named, he's like, I wanted it to be a broad name, but if I played a character named Dave Johnson, people would look at me and think like, that's not Dave. And I'm like, I think we'd buy it, Gary. <laughs> now you're overthinking a little bit. But, yeah. <laughs> but uh, oh, the other thing I didn't mention about It's Gary Shandling show also is the theme song. Uh, a lot of people mention the theme song. And if you've ever listened to uh, Boston Radio, you might remember that the Planet Mikey show did a parody of It's Gary Shandling show, Ugh. which is which is incredibly redundant because Gary Shandling's the the theme song is like this is the theme to Gary's show, the opening theme to Gary's show. Mm-hmm. It's mocking the idea of theme songs. So to do a parody of that doesn't make any sense. You see, <laughs> so holding two magnets up against each other, <laughs> opposite sides. Yeah, <laughs> but. Uh, but yeah, that was also like all the way down to the theme song. He would think, how can I mock what we're doing? Basically, like everything was deconstructing all the way down to the theme song. And so everything was a commentary on society, on human behavior. Um, if it was on the Larry Sanders show, it was a commentary on talk shows, obviously. But it was also a commentary on how people in that situation uh, would behave. And I think that more than anything is the obvious comparison to Seinfeld. Um, I think when we talked about Larry David, we said that, uh, uh, Oh no, you know what? It was Mel Brooks where Mel Brooks said, um, Mel Brooks is more macro and Woody Allen's more micro. And I think there's something to be said there with Shandling and Seinfeld. And really the comparison I think is more to Larry David because there's a lot of comparisons to Curb as well. But I think Larry David looked at just basic human interaction and broke those down. Whereas Shandling, there was a little more of a philosophical feel to some of the stuff he was commenting on. Uh, Next clip we have is called Deconstruction. And I honestly forget what it's about. It's it's about exactly what I was just talking about where uh, he he has to deconstruct everything he did. The 25th anniversary... Uh, it's Gary Shandling show, Larry Sanders. These things are all deconstructions of the things they're supposed to be about, which uh, is a very interesting theme throughout his career. What is it about sort of the deconstruction of these showbiz things that fascinates you so much? Well, I think it has to do with my interest in deconstructing life, Uh, you know, and the idea that life and death are uh, two sides of the same coin. and I wrote something about the Dalai Lama told me that life and death are two sides of the same coin. And I said, just put it in the meter, man. Are you always on? But I think it's a deconstructing life. I think it's exploring life and what it's about. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, you can't walk around in life uh, constantly deconstructing it, but you can on TV because it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a step away from life. And that became literally everything. For whatever reason, the first show that came to mind after all the other ones I've mentioned is uh, BoJack Horseman, which is just a cartoon on Netflix. And, you know, on the surface, it seems like it's going to be a goofy cartoon about uh, 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 a sitcom horse. (laughs) And in reality, it's like this deep meta commentary on Hollywood and depression and alcoholism and there's all these elements to it that you're not expecting. And I think that's where a lot of, uh, 
true, true geniuses thrive. I think Bo Burnham is very similar. Um, and we have a great moment between Bo and Shanling coming up in a bit, but like, I think Bo is very similar where, you know, you get into the business of Hollywood and there, there's certain types of people that all they can do to survive, to not kill themselves for being in this kind of phony vapid world is to poke holes in it and make fun of it. And I never realized, again, I thought Shandling was like a straight laced observational comedian. I never realized until, um, you know, watching a lot of these interviews with him, uh, watching a lot of Larry Sanders show and particularly the documentary that Apatow made, what a you know deep introspective guy and creative guy that he was. Uh, next, we have him talking about the the uh, Brad Gray lawsuit. So this is where things started to change for Gary in a bit, um, and his fiance. I mentioned uh, his fiance. Um, you know, he didn't want to have kids. That was a uh, kind of the nail in the coffin of their relationship. They were together for, I think seven years and she was on the show and uh, she, they broke up and shortly after, I think a matter of days or weeks, uh, she found out she'd been fired from the show. And it's, she has a line in this documentary that I found really interesting where she says, we started out, making fun of the industry. And then somewhere along the line, Gary became the industry. And I thought that sort of conversation is what made the documentary interesting to me. Cause I was like, Oh, this isn't a completely glowing piece about Gary Shandling. It showed some of the, uh, the foibles that he, he may have suffered from, but out of that. So she uh, sued for wrongful termination because, you know, obviously it, it did appear to be a personal gripe that she got fired for, but through that lawsuit, we learned that uh, Brad Gray, who was um, Gary's agent at the time, a uh, longtime agent, actually, and um, he owned 50% of the Larry Sanders show. And it turns out he was using that as leverage to basically uh, get deals for his other clients. So, you know, like with HBO, he would negotiate for other clients and other capacities using the Larry Sanders show as leverage. And I also think there were other ways he's it's, it's too complex for an idiot to like me to fully grasp, but basically Larry size, uh, Larry Sanders, Gary Shandling. Look, <laughs> see? This is a, see, he was right. <laughs> he was right. <laughs> he is a Larry. Yeah. Uh, he looked at this as a, a, a massive betrayal, obviously, and wound up suing Brad Gray for a hefty sum. But, uh, you know, I'm in the middle of a, of a lawsuit, and there are stories being used to proliferate uh, certain uh, aspects of that uh, lawsuit, which I, you know, don't necessarily want to get into because it's a difficult uh, circumstance uh, that I can't discuss much. Yeah, I, I know a little bit about it. I mean, I've read the Lynn Hirschberg piece mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I mean, I, I think sued your manager for $100 million. Yeah. Ooh, yeah, not a little. Well, uh, saying he was paying too much attention to building his own business and not looking after you. Well, there was a there's there's a trust issue with a uh, uh, personal manager who is there to look out for your best interest by definition, and uh, there are specific circumstances which I can't get into that my lawyer's David Boyce, who's prosecuting oh, the David Microsoft. David Boyce is your case, guy. Uh huh. 
and He's Larry Silverman good. here in New York both <laughs> feel strongly Thanks, about it. Uh, and he does his job well, um, as do I. And for standing up for doing what I think is right, uh, there's a price to pay, and there's a game to be played, and there's a lot of spinning being done that is common in America now. I think it's an incredibly uh, unfortunate circumstance that our world has become one in which this so-called spin is used uh, for certain agendas. I, but, uh, so th- I, there's a little bit of Carson in shambling, I think, yeah. in the sense that when you cross this guy, you're fucking dead to him. That's it. <laughs> it's over. Over. And and Brad Gray uh, was certainly in that camp. I think when you sue someone for $100 million, whether or not you win, uh, you're, you're basically saying our relationship is certainly over. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to ruin your fucking life. <laughs> and everyone related to you's life. <laughs> so it seems like uh, Larry, Larry did. I don't. I keep doing that now. <laughs> Gary. <laughs> Uh, did not win the hundred million dollars. I don't believe, but I think uh, made, made made out pretty nicely in a settlement in this lawsuit, um, and came away with a lot of the, as they phrased it, a lot of the properties that he wanted. And he was back on Charlie Rose years later talking about it, and there was a big smile on his face. So I don't know exactly what the terms were, but uh, Gary was happy with uh, whatever they settled on. But what's sad about this, and they did. Um, so Bob Odenkirk plays. The, the, what is supposed to be the Brad Gray character in um, a season of the Larry Sanders show. And uh, basically they came back for that season because Gary Shandling said, like I said, Brad Gray owned half the show and Shandling said, I just want to come back to prove everyone to the Brad Gray did fucking nothing for this show, <laughs> which is again, it's a little Carson, but you got to respect the, uh, the hatred there, you know? Absolutely. Respect the game and hate. Yeah, without a doubt. But uh, what was really sad in the documentary, the, w- here's how I look at this, by the way, guys. I know I keep referencing the documentary. There's nothing that we're talking about that isn't broached in that documentary at some point. This is the Reader's Digest version. Right. They did a tremendous job. We're just trying to make it a little more palatable for you <laughs> and not a six-hour epic or whatever the hell it was. Um, but what was sad in the documentary, and it's sad because both these guys are gone, and obviously this came out after Shandling passed, but um, Brad Gray represented very early in their careers, uh, Dave Coulier, Bob Saget, and Gary Shandling. And those guys were uh, very tight back in the day. And Saget and Shandling were good friends. And I guess Saget made some joke about Gary. Like when someone asked him about the lawsuit, I guess Saget made some, some joke about like trying to get a car out of Brad Gray or something like that. <laughs> 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 and uh, I, I, that kind of killed their relationship. It seemed the way Saget interpreted it is that Gary felt I chose Brad Gray's side. I meaning Saget. And he said they ran into each other once years later. And um, Bob was like, Hey man, like, I want you back in my life. We were, we were such close friends. I miss you. And he said, then we joked for a little bit and then I would reach out to him after and I never heard anything again. And Saget's like tearing up at this. It's very, it's very sad. It's the most like, um, other than an episode of full house, it's the most emotional I've seen Saget. <laughs> he gets pretty emotional um, on that show. <laughs> it was pretty tough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah. that was very sad. But again, Shandling's one of these 
just like when he's done with the, he's done with the, I think he, he draws those lines in his head. And uh, you know, if you cross him, you, you were, you were done. So he didn't, again, I never knew the level of like power he attained in Hollywood, but like that show was, it did put him kind of on a different level. And some people say like it changed him for the worse in that way. Again, at least that's how the, the documentary kind of spun it in the interviews that I saw late in his life. I didn't get that vibe. Um, you know, like he talked to Marin about these basketball games they would have, uh, like these, you know, secret celebrity basketball games that he conducted. You know what? Here's where the documentary could have shortened up a bit. I don't care that he's building a house in 1990. <laughs> <laughs> <Without> that. Wow. <laughs> the man's been dead for <laughs> years at this point. Right. I don't need to see the construction of his home. But Wow, nice backsplash. Uh, but nevertheless, it was very good. <laughs> uh, next we have stand-up. Yeah, so this is a clip from uh, that I believe was not used. Judd Apatow unearthed this when he was making the documentary. Um, and th- there's a full video on YouTube of uh, Chris Rock, Jerry Seinfeld, and Shandling hanging backstage in a green room. And this is some of the stand-up from, uh, from that night. How hypocritical the government is with Viagra. You take a drug like ecstasy, which I've never done. I've done agony and despair. <laughs> Waka waka. That is a good blow. You can cry at just about anything. So, uh, uh, the ecstasy, which is a drug that puts you in the mood to have sex, that's illegal. But a drug that gives you a hard on for no reason whatsoever, hey, fine. Take as much of it as you can. That's what's causing all this violence is you got these guys taking Viagra with no one to have sex with and they're walking around with hard-ons going, I'll, I'll fucking shoot this thing off. I'm going to go get a gun. That's what they, they should actually have a 15-day waiting period for Viagra to make sure you got someone to fuck that they, that they do with guns. What a great fun show. Well, I'm mostly just thinking about how I did. (laughs) (laughs) I I wanted to make sure to keep that line in because I love that. I think it's such an insight to all comedians and insecure people in general, but generally comedians are insecure where they're like, wow, this is amazing. Three three legends hanging out and uh, all crushing it in stand-up. And Shannon is like, yeah, I really am just focused on like how well I did or didn't do, you know? (laughs) But... Uh, also, you can see there, I think, like, that's why I like his stand-up a little more than Seinfeld's. I just think he's more, he seems to be to be a little more relatable to me. He's a little... Um, he doesn't sound like a robot. Exactly, yeah. He sounds like a regular guy. A little curse here and there, and he just seems a little more uh, relatable than Seinfeld ever did in his stand-up. But it is definitely, you can also see the similarities there as well, I think. Definitely. Um but uh, yeah, this is a little him, uh, more him and Seinfeld talking in the green room, right? Yeah, talking about doing nothing. Yeah, this is this is interesting. And again, I think it goes back to him putting such pressure on himself and worrying, like, am I going to get sick of this? Um, yeah, this is like 2001 or something. So after Larry Sanders had uh, been done and he kind of got rid of some of that stress and he's uh, talking about the relief that that brings. Right. I think people felt the worst for you. You know, I think the audience, I think the 
guidance was pulling for me. Yeah, yeah. 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 So are you going to start I going? I tonight. I'm going to start. I think, I've, yeah. I, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to do some gigs? Or what are you going to do with it? Go on TV? Why are you working? I'm just curious. You know what I really related to? When you said, I'm doing nothing, and if I did something, then I would have to drop that. <laughs> Am I right? That's right. That's I have to drop exactly. everything. I totally relate that. Yeah. Ray would relate to that completely. Yeah. There's a lot in that nothing. Yeah, there's a lot. That might that nothing might be uh, the way you're supposed to live. <laughs> that, that's very, if you want to talk about Zen and Buddhism and everything, that's very Zen to just be like, you know, there's something about like Seinfeld's asking, why are you doing the stand-up? And I think that's the mentality that a lot of stand-ups get into is like, you know, back then, like, oh, I'm preparing for a Tonight Show set or I'm preparing to host, you know, like uh, Shandling hosted uh, the Emmys and the Grammys at different points in his career. So, like, I'm getting ready for, you know, for my Emmys set monologue or whatever. Um, I'm getting ready to do a TV show and I'm doing stand-up on the show, so I have to prepare for that. There has to be something nice in a stand-up's career to just being like, I was on stage for no reason. That has to be kind of a freeing thing. And that's probably where a lot of your best material comes from, where you're just doing it to get out there and do it. Um, and I think it's why a lot of guys that don't have those side hustles as it were, like, you know, Brian Regan and David tell, I think that's why they're good into their sixties, fifties and sixties, because they were purely focused on stand-up. They were like, I'm writing this for stand-up. I'm not writing it for an SNL monologue or something, you know? It's not it's not a backup plan. Exactly. Yeah, it's not a backup plan. This is this is all I have. And it seems like Shandling found that later in life. Um also, we did mention uh, you know, some of his worry and paranoia that made his stand-up great. That's one thing that I forgot to mention about the lawsuit was uh there were apparently famous wiretaps where Stallone and a bunch of other people were uh, victims of these wiretaps as part of this Brad Gray lawsuit, a private investigator. Uh, they found a bunch of uh, wiretaps, and some of those were on the phone of one Gary Shandling. And they said around that time, Gary was constantly paranoid that he was being bugged. And I don't know if that's good or bad for your psyche, when you constantly think you're being bugged and then it comes out like, Oh, I was, thank God. <laughs> I'm not insane. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I was right. And he goes, it con- makes yeah, it the worse. Constant fear I lived under <laughs> was correct. Or it makes you like feel vindicated and almost like relax more. <laughs> Possibly. Yeah. Yeah. I may, yeah, as they say, uh, I may be paranoid, but it doesn't mean I'm wrong. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, next we have a meeting Ricky Gervais. So this was interesting. I, I pulled this because uh, on KMS, Kirk mentioned this to me. I had not seen this before. And I have the backstory in a minute, but the, we'll play for now the bizarre interaction between Ricky Gervais. Ricky Gervais shows up at Chandling's house to shoot something. It seems like, like if you're just watching this for the first time, it almost seems like unannounced that Gary showed up at his home. And uh, I'll tell you why after we play the clip. Why did you ruin that moment by looking? How did you <laughs> come in? How did you, was that you that was looking? It's your house. Why, was that you that was looking this way? No. Who was looking right here when I was walking in? When I was standing out there, didn't you see that I was coming walking in? No. Is that you? No. Hold on. Before I shake your hand and say hello, first you said, no, that wasn't me. 
No, I didn't see you. I swear well, I didn't you're see you. changing the story to no, that was me, but I didn't see you. Uh, that's true. But you said, is it you that looked out there? What I was doing was talking to my producer that was here. Right, because you were standing about here looking this way. Yeah. Well, there's the way to tell if it was me or not. Don't touch me. Did it look like me? <laughs> if it looks like me... And it smells like you. Then it might have been me. I doubt that it's you. What are you doing? It's my contact lenses. I don't, that's why I have these on. These are my prescription sunglasses. Okay. Hi. It's a pleasure to see you. Pleasure to meet you. Gary Shandling. I have never met uh, Ricky before. So this is actually... Uh, For real? Uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'll explain. But first, I did. It made me think of like my grandfather because that felt like a very stir. You know, he's a serious man of uh, advanced years. When he's like, "Hey, before I shake your hand," I was like, "Ooh!" It felt very like he was about to scold Ricky. Well, I thought he was joking with him at first, and then like I was like, "This." What? If he is he, joking, this is bad. <laughs> he's joking and he's not. Like he's he's shandling it up a little bit. But he's also very annoyed. So what happened here is in the moment, Shanley thinks Gervais is just fucking with him because what they agreed to do. Oh, and remind me to talk about the DVD extras of uh, Larry Sanders show in a minute because that was also very innovative. But what uh, uh, what they agreed to do is um, Shanley was filming these extras for the DVD box set that was coming out of Larry Sanders show. And he asked Ricky Gervais to be a part of it. And Ricky said, will you be a part of my BBC interview series that I'm doing? And Shanley said, yes, but he's, he, he, I guess they were communicating through their, you know, agents or publicists, whoever. And something got lost in translation. But what Gary said is, you know, we're going to do this, um, the thing for my, what I'm trying to accomplish in the interview is more serious. And then we'll do yours afterwards because yours is going to be more jokey and upbeat because you can, it's much easier to go from serious to upbeat than the other way around. Right. It's hard to be like upbeat and silly and then go, oh, wow, that's, or you know what? I actually might have it backwards now that I'm trying to get into that mindset, but either way, um, I think it's way easier to go from serious to joke than the other way. Uh, yeah, I think I, I, I might. I think you're right. I think I might have it backwards. Um, so basically what happened is Gervais comes into Shanley's house doing this wacky bit, unknowing of this, you know, deal that Shanley had laid out. And Shanley's like, what the fuck is going on, man? You're just showing up at my house? <laughs> We're supposed to have this serious interview. I'm in my pajamas here. What's going on? <laughs> So it was just this very weird, uncomfortable, and it gets, it gets more, Shandling doesn't break this, like, he's very direct with Ricky uh, throughout the interview, but then um, in the uh, interview that I played, we just played a few clips from that uh, Foundation Interviews series that he was a part of, he kind of acknowledged Ricky and said, like, I, I don't really think it was his fault, he goes, I, f I find it crazy that his people didn't inform him of this, but I think it's more his people's fault than uh, Ricky's, and they patched things up over the years. But it was a very weird, uh, uncomfortable interview that they, or, you know, whatever you call it, that they did with each other. Um, next uh, is the green room thing that you uh, referenced earlier. Yeah, so, so <laughs> people have asked me to do, like, an entire uh, mini episode about this green room thing, which I have to go back and watch the whole thing to uh, see if that's worthy of it. Uh, blindmike.net, sign up for the Patreon for those bonus episodes. But I thought this was a really cool moment. 
honestly more for Bo Burnham, but I credit Shandling a lot for playing along. So I think uh, Marin is on here. Uh, Ray Romano is a part of this, Gary Shandling. And what this show is, is from like 2011 around there. It seemed like it tried to be like tough crowd light. Right. Where they're, they're not like talking politics or anything, but it is like, you know, four or five comedians sitting around and busting balls. A hang. Sort of yeah. Yeah. I, uh, Patrice. I remember there's an episode where like Patrice and Roseanne, that there's some cool stuff. It seemed like a cool idea for a show. Well, it was when it was tough crowd, <laughs> but it seemed like they did a good job with it. I don't know why it wasn't successful, but uh, this episode, Bo Burnham, who is known in the YouTube world, but like not really respected by comedians. I think a lot of comedians just thought like, Oh, here's this cornball singer that is trying to get into standup. They didn't realize he was a genius. Right. Um, and this is a moment that a lot of people say Bo really established himself uh, as a comic and Chandler uh, has a good time with it. He he shouldn't be able to talk before him. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I that's have, true. Fair point. I am. Yeah, Fair point. I'm of the uh, the younger generation, so I just wonder for all of you, uh, who are you? <laughs> all right, now you can talk. <laughs> it's so good. It's it, it's so good because it's so mutual. <laughs> <laughs> just a perfect comeback by Shanley, I thought. but you could tell that's what's great and that's what's drawn me to comedy over the years and things the idea that Bo Burnham like they don't know who the fuck he is and then he pipes up and just insults all of them and Ray Romano's like okay now I respect you <laughs> like literally that's the moment where Romano's like okay now you can talk you know? <laughs> And so uh, I, thought that, I thought that was a very uh, cool moment. And later in that, Shandling, again, when you talk about the, the foresight of this guy and the, um, the innovation, he could see in other people too, I guess, because he says to Bo Burnham, he's like, you know, there's a, there's a quality in you, and I mean this is a compliment that you're weird, and I think you see the world <laughs> in, in weird ways. Yeah. Now, at this time, Bo Burnham is 20. He's singing songs about how people think he's gay. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't that innovative. Like he was very funny, but he wasn't this introspective, innovative guy uh, that we now know him as. So for Shandling to call that out when he doesn't really know the fuck Bo Burnham is, um, I thought that was incredible. It was, a, it's a very cool uh, uh, interaction that they have with him. His face was perfect too. And he says, he just like shuts his eyes. He's like, it's so mutual. So it's so mutual. <laughs> <laughs> very funny. But uh, which is, which is by the way, it's like, that's how, it should have been. Bo, I'm sure Bo Burnham knows who Gary Shandling and Ray Romano are. Oh, yeah. But a lot of 20-year-olds wouldn't, especially Shandling. Right. You know, but also Gary Shandling at age 60 at that time should know who the fuck Bo Burnham is. Right. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Uh, so it was a, a very cool moment, I thought. I think uh, Bo was joking and Shandling was very serious. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, he definitely was serious, but yeah. I think Bo earned his respect uh, uh, to the course of that yeah. sit down, whatever you want to call it. But we are at uh, our last clip, and it's usually our favorite segment. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think. Like I said, this is the Reader's Digest version of that documentary. I'm certain there's things we missed because the documentary is like six hours long. But <laughs> um, uh, they did a very good job. I definitely. And what I really recommend is the Larry Sanders show because that's a great. I'm going through it now. I had seen episodes before, um, but I never sat down and watched it. 
And because I knew I was doing shanling, I was like, let me sit down. It holds up. I mean, like perfect. If you told me it was airing today, if I didn't know that, you know, Gary Shanling was dead and <laughs> Jeffrey Tambor was 30 years older, but like beyond that, I'd be like, Oh, this is, it holds up so perfectly. Where can you watch it? Uh, HBO uh, max, whatever the fuck they call it now. Cool. I have that. Yeah. I will partake. Yeah. Go check it out. And it's cool. Cause like I said, the only, com- the only real comparison entourage that I make is the way it's shot and the way that celebrities drop in and it feels very natural. I think entourage got a little, uh, carried away with it in the later years but in the early seasons it feels very natural it feels like oh you know an a-list celebrity would be running into these people and uh you know an agent would be dealing with these types of people um and that's how larry sanders show felt is like these are the people that would be dropping in on a talk show um so i definitely recommend people check it out because like i said it holds up very well um also before we hear from uh, our buddy norm on the larry sanders show make sure you check out blindmike.net that's where you get all these episodes that I've been referencing. All the old episodes we've done, uh, the archives, the bonus episodes, um, the archives you can find on YouTube of every episode we've ever done. Go back, look through those. Also, wherever you get podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, wherever. Uh, make sure you subscribe, You know, tap the notification bell. All that stuff helps our numbers, helps the algorithm, helps get more eyeballs on this program and ears. And uh, if you want to subscribe to the Patreon or become a YouTube member, you can do that as well. Just go to blindmike.net. Merch tab is up there as well. Um, and if you want to see uh, what kind of, um, if you want to talk innovation, then go to a very good show.org. <laughs> they've, they've, they've developed this sort of shock jock type of uh, radio. We just say whatever comes to our mind. We don't hold anything back. That's what's crazy is it's kind of like guys just busting chops. Yeah. Uh, so go to verygoodshow.org for Craig and all of his hijinks and shenanigans. Um, all right. So this is a clip from uh, the, I'd be curious to know um what real life story this is taken from because the plot line of this episode is that uh, a, a sex tape of sorts has been released of Hank, who is Jeffrey Tambor's character. That is basically Ed McMahon. Um, so imagine, you know, Ed McMahon, a sex tape comes out of him at the peak of the tonight show. And your guest is Norm McDonald. The only, the only flaw in this scene is that Norm would have just said this stuff on air, but right. uh, this is pretty great. Tough town. It's they got uh, you know homeless guys everywhere you look, you know. Yeah. And that's tough. It breaks your heart, you know. Yeah. And uh, I seen one guy there the other day in New York, a homeless guy had a, a dog with him, you know. Yeah. And that's tough. Do you feel sorry for the for the dog, you know? I mean, right. You know, the dog's not thrilled with the deal as he got a homeless guy. Yeah. You know. And, uh, it's bad enough when the dog doesn't have a house. Right now he's. <laughs> You know, he's going, hey, I can do this by myself. I don't need a goddamn, you know. It's like the longest walk in the world of the dog, you know. He's well, why don't we take a break, and then we'll uh, come back, and we'll uh, talk some more. You want to do that? Yeah, that's great. Okay, you're just hilarious. We'll be right back with that. Good, 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 good. Hey, Larry, I, uh, 
saw that tape of Hank, man. Oh. That's some kind of hog he's got on him, huh? I'm glad the Fonz are sitting here between us. I feel oh. kind of safe. <laughs> you look really good, Hank. Very centered. Life must be good, huh? I'm drunk. <laughs> Actually, my life is shit. Well, it can't be that bad. I mean, I... I just heard that, that you are you're coming out with some kind of a tape, an exercise tape. Congratulations. What is that, a joke? What, are you trying to be funny? You know, you, you can't just uh, bang a, a jukebox and go, and all your problems disappear, Fonzie. <laughs> it worked for me. Kind of go fuck yourself. Hey, hey, you dear friend of mine. Keep on everybody banana bread. Keep Larry your sweaters. Don't pick on him. You want to pick on somebody? Pick on Norm McDonald. He didn't bring anything. <laughs> You're very funny. You know, it's true. You're very funny. Really, I just want to say that my children love the uh, news update you do on Saturday Night Live. Hey, have you seen Hank's tape? Man, it's unbelievable. That's got a huge cock on it. <laughs> 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 it's all the way around. I think it's so great. And that, I just, I wanted to throw that in a, obviously for the norm shoehorning that we love to do. Yeah. Uh, is a staple of this program, but also like, I think it gives you a taste. If you do want to go watch the Larry Sanders show, that gives you a taste of what it is where like everything's played so perfectly there. And they would have celebrities like the idea that th- they have Henry Winkler on and just bash his most famous character yeah. <laughs> and kind of like shit on him a little bit. And he plays along with it. They found people that were willing to do that. And uh, all I could think of is, like I said, the only flaw in the scene is that uh, can you imagine if a tape came out and we found out that Andy Richter had like a nine inch cock. <laughs> it'd be, it, Norm would have lived through cancer yeah. just to talk about it more. Yeah. And he probably would have got, he probably would have hosted his own show. Or- <laughs> <laughs> But, but uh, yeah, uh, go watch the Larry Sanders show. Go watch the Judd Apatow documentary because I think Shandling is a guy that it, when you look at the history of comedy and television, I don't think Shandling gets enough credit for what he was able to create. Um, I don't know if I've made that point enough on today's episode, but, <laughs> but, but it is true. Yeah. Uh, so go check all that stuff out. Go to blindmike.net, support the show. Go to verygoodshow.org, support Craig. Thank you. And uh, we will talk to you guys next time on Why Are You Laughing? Zip it up and zip it out. Yeah.